0: Hey, we're going to turn our attention to God's Word this morning. If you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to open it up to the New Testament, to the fifth book of the New Testament, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. Last week we explored, um, Neil took us through the story of Pentecost Sunday, and we're going to pick it up on the tail end of that moment and see what comes after it. Acts was a book written some decades after Jesus Christ's life and time on earth, um, it, it describes really, uh, his first book was Luke, the Gospel of Luke that tells the story of Jesus and what he did on earth about a 30 year three decade time span. and the book of Acts describes what Jesus continued to do after his life on Earth in a second 30 year time span, from about the year thirty to about the year 60. What happened in those years? It doesn't tell us everything. My goodness, if you read Acts, you're going to have lots of questions. Now, why doesn't Luke answer? Why doesn't God want us to know the answer to these kinds of questions and share with us this information? But we have what we have. God has given it to us. And so we read it, and we listen, and we try to discern what does God want to say to us, and why does he want us to know that? Pentecost Day was an extraordinary day. So many Jews from all over the world had gathered together and come for a special celebration, one of the key days in the Jewish calendar every year. And on that day, God's Spirit came in a special way and gathered on a relatively small group of people in the midst of that city. There were tens of thousands of of people who lived there and then many, many others who would come to visit the community because of Pentecost. But on that day, there were 120 gathered together and God's Spirit showed up And he impacted them. And before long, people were wondering what was going on. And Peter got up to speak. Never knew he was a public speaker before, but suddenly he was. And he was speaking and sharing. You can tell he was sharing things he'd learned from Jesus. Not just in Jesus' life with them over a couple of years, but in particular between that resurrection day and the day he ascended to the Father. And people responded. They listened and they heard. And they felt like what God was saying to them was, was meant for them. Not just for others, but for them. And they responded. And then near the end of Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 42, we read a description of that community of early Jesus followers. Uh, Before we stand and and listen to these words together, just listen to what Peter did at the end of his message. When people said, what should we do? Okay, you've shared this with us, what do we do about it? And, and, And Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day astounding I invite you to stand as we read this chapter to its end and hear that description of this early community of faith Luke writes they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles all the believers were together and had everything in common In the New Testament, we read a couple of different descriptions of the church. In Peter, First Peter, chapter 2, we read these words. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. In Titus, Paul is writing, an older man now writing to a younger leader of the church, telling him words to share and what to do in his role as a pastor. And in chapter 2, um, he uses these words, he, speaking about Jesus Christ. Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Any of you like Vitalis? Yeah, Some? Okay, I see those hands. I heard some murmuring, I don't know. Would you believe I've lived here for 14 years and I've never eaten at Vitalis? Oh. Think I better do something about that to decide whether I like it or not before I bring it up on a Sunday morning? I was just thinking about the name of Vitalis. What ethnic derivation is that name? Italian, of course, yeah, of course, yeah. But have you ever thought about the name? Vitali, do you see something in that word? Vitali, vital, vital. Vitality. It's a word, it's a name that actually means vital. To be vital is to be alive. It's to be lively. It's to have life and it's to have energy. And that's exactly what we read about the church in the earliest days at the end of Acts chapter 2. In the days, and I believe actually the end of Acts 2 describes not just the church the next day after Pentecost. But in the days, the months, and the years, and maybe even the decades to follow in so many ways. Luke is summing up what life in that early church was like. Now, granted, this is a really good picture. It doesn't talk about the challenges, it doesn't talk about the failures, it doesn't talk about when people mess up. And those things are all real and they happened. But there was an overwhelming reality to those early followers of Jesus who gathered together that they were, vita- they were a vitality church. They were alive. They were lively. They were energetic in their faith. Something was happening in that community that could not be contained. It was breaking out. And it was impacting the world around them. And people could not help but pay attention. A British economist of some years ago, E.F. Schumacher, wrote a book back in the 1970s, late 70s, called A Guide for the Perplexed. At the very beginning of that book, he recalls a visit he had made to the Soviet Union, the then Soviet Union, some years earlier, and to a particular city. Today, we would call it St. Petersburg, but that back then, it was known as Leningrad. He was in the city, and he was consulting a map, trying to figure out and get a grip on exactly where he was, but he couldn't figure it out. I'll read the way he wrote it. From where I stood, I could see several enormous churches, yet there was no trace of them on my map. When finally an interpreter came to help me, he said, we don't show churches on our maps. And contradicting him, I pointed to one that was very clearly marked. That's a museum, he said, not what we call a living church. It is only the living churches that we don't show. What an interesting moment from Soviet history history. that if there was a living church which presumably is something like, in some level to some measure, like us today that wasn't even marked because in the Soviet system and in the Soviet understanding of the world religion, and in particular Christian faith, was insignificant and an enemy to be either battled or ignored. But the buildings that were listed were the ones that were not living, museums. Summer after I graduated from college, I traveled through Europe with some friends. And for the most part, I went to churches that were museums, or at least they seemed to be museums. They were huge, and they had extraordinary art, and they had people going in and out all the time. And sometimes you paid to walk in and out, and sometimes you paid to use the restroom in that facility in and out. Every once in a while there were a couple people praying there and if you wandered by on a Sunday or a Sunday morning you might find in this gargantuan cathedral a small group of people gathered singing weekly (laughs) I don't mean every week, but weekly it was week Um, and doing the best they could and praying and, and opening the Bible I don't mean to diminish what they were actually doing at all When I got to England I was traveling with a friend and we went to England or we went to London and on Sunday morning we went to All Souls Church and heard a famed preacher, John Stott, was preaching that day. The next day I traveled to Cambridge, stayed with some friends there. On Wednesday night I remember going to Eden Baptist Church. You know what I know about All Souls Church and Eden Baptist Church? They wouldn't have showed up on a Soviet map because they were living, they were lively. There was something happening there, and it had a lot to do with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. But I'd spent a lot of my weeks in Europe visiting church buildings that were beautiful, that must have had an awesome story and an awesome history. But I have a feeling most of them would have been marked on the Soviet maps. Because there wasn't something alive there. Jesus Christ didn't call us together, didn't create a church, didn't commit to building a church for no reason at all, but because he wants one. He wants a people. He wants a people distributed. He wants a people gathered in communities all over Grand Rapids for existence. And his plan is not for dead churches, but for Vitali churches, vital churches, living churches. But what do those churches look like? If we look at the words in Acts chapter 2, we'll get a pretty good picture of what's involved. So I want you to look again, and, and uh, let's put Acts chapter 2 verse 42 up on the screen. But listen to this description of... of um, what went on in that church? It says they, those, are those who have responded, the 120 plus the 3,000, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayer or the prayers. They devoted themselves. That word devoted is a verb translated as um, devoted is a common one that connotes a steadfast and single-hearted fidelity to a certain course of action. You know what it's like to have that? It is to, to have your mind committed to something, your life committed to something. You're on a journey. It's not just a, a momentary thing. It's not, it's not something you're going to be swayed from quickly. It's something you commit to. Guess what the, the um, Millers and the B- DeBoers did this morning? They committed themselves to something. And I pray that they will prove to be devoted to that. It's not just an, a, a ceremony. It's not just something we do in a moment, but it's a mark of a life, and that's what those early Christians were like. They'd heard about Jesus, and they were drawn to him, and they were interested in him. And when God's Spirit came, God's Spirit came into their lives, and they felt something. They experienced something. Something was alive in them that hadn't been before. And they committed themselves for the long haul to what God wanted to do in their lives. So I want to look at some of the things they were committed to, not just in that verse, but in the verses to come. And first we'll just start here. The, the church is vital and living when it is a learning church. The church is vital and living when it's a learning church. Dead churches aren't learning. Or they're not learning what those early Christians were learning. What were they learning? Again, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching. There was a center to their faith. There was an intellectual content to their faith. Is God's only desire for our lives that we that he fills our minds or we fill our minds with knowledge and information that we become Bible experts that we can spit it all back? No, of course not. He wants your heart, he wants your will, he wants the whole of your life, he wants your emotions, he wants your relationships? But he's interested in your mind as well. He doesn't want you ignorant. He wants you knowledgeable. And to do that, those early Christians were devoted to the apostles' teaching. The apostles were the ones who were the leaders of the community. There was, at this moment in time, no complete Bible. There was a Hebrew Bible, but there was no New Testament. It hadn't been written yet. Nothing had been written about Jesus yet. And so in these earliest days, the apostles who had been appointed and called by Jesus were the ones who led the community. And they gathered to them together and they taught. And we have to guess what they taught because Luke doesn't tell us directly. But we know that what we can be sure that what they taught had a lot to do with what Peter had just been talking about. About Jesus, about his life, about his death, about his resurrection, about what they meant. About how the Old Testament prophecies and promises tied in with Jesus and how they went hand in glove, how one fulfilled the other. It was communication about who God is, and about the, the center of the faith that had been handed on from the Jewish tradition. It was an understanding of what it meant and what it means to follow Jesus in practical ways. In everyday living, ethics, and how we respond to certain situations, and how we think about things, and how we talk. All of those things. And those early followers devoted themselves. A church is vital in living when it's a learning church. You've heard this phrase, I'm sure. The, the idea of being a lifelong learner, that's inherent in being a Christian. Or at least it's in, it, it should be inherent in being a Christian. Because the truth is that none of us know Jesus or God or their word as we could. It's greater and more. There's no end to what we can explore. There's no end to the, the depth of, of the experience we can have with God. And it's a tragedy if we satisfy, if we're satisfied with a very thin level of understanding. It's so easy to live there, but it doesn't take us where God wants us to, to be taken. And thin levels of understanding lead to anemic weak churches a vital and living church is a church that's a learning church a learning community second the church is vital and living when it is a loving community a, a, a a loving church continue to look at that verse they devoted themselves not just to the apostles teaching but to the fellowship oh that word sounds anemic too to us what's fellowship It's just when you go upstairs in the fellowship hall, because that's the only place you can fellowship, and you have coffee and something to eat, and you talk about the football games yesterday, or what happened this week, and all that's fine, but that's not quite exactly what fellowship is. The word for fellowship is a word, koinonia, that expresses, talks about what's common, what's held in common. Uh, Most of the writers in the New Testament don't use it very much. The man who loved the word koinonia or common was the the writer Paul. He loved that word. He loved it to describe our faith and our life with God. When he talked about our participation in the body and blood of the Lord as we celebrate communion, he talked about it being a participation in the body and blood. a, A koinonia in that, a fellowship in the body and blood. When he called on people all around the world to send help to Jerusalem in later years, when Jerusalem was in bad times and sad times, and people were struggling materially and financially, and in terms of the basic needs of life, they were participating in a koinonia, a common effort to care for others. God has invited us to an experience where we actually are a body, where we are a fellowship, where we belong together. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, had a, a, a book he wrote that is still read by many people. It's just called Life Together. And that is exactly descriptive of the Christian life. There's an important individual element in our life. You know, on Pentecost Day, when the tongues of flame came, they were apportioned and went over each individual as if to remind people or or, or actually not remind them as if to remind us but to reveal to those individuals that God's place in their lives his work in their lives through Jesus was very individual and personal before this time God's spirit was on the community or maybe on certain leaders but not on the individuals that made up the people of God but with Pentecost day now the spirit is dwelt not just in the community as a whole and not just in assisting certain leaders in their work, but on each individual who make up the body of Christ. But in spite of that individual element, God's work in our lives is meant to be a communal thing. And it's so important that, that we be together. And these early Christians were. They expressed that fellowship in any number of ways. They were committed to the breaking of bread. They... Uh, were together, it says. What an interesting phrase. Verse 44, all the believers were together. They gathered together. They liked being together. They wanted to be with one another, to encourage each other, to enjoy each other, to grow with each other, to serve with each other. That was happening again and again. And they cared for each other in the most practical way. What a radical approach. When things were tight... When certain people were struggling financially, these people treated their own possessions as if they were the possessions of a community. And when there was a need and someone had something, they would sell what they had and receive those proceeds and then share them with others. What a radical commitment. What a beautiful picture of what um, being a part of a real community is all about. A loving community. Remember, love is a key word for the Christian faith. We're called to love God with all we are. We're called to love our neighbors as ourselves, but there's a more intimate, closer love that we're invited to. It's a love for each other, a love for one another, because we recognize in each other brothers and sisters. We recognize in each other people who belong to Jesus as well, and that love is a very key and special love. Third thing I want you to see is this. The church is vital and living when it is a worshiping church. Listen to these words again. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, a learning church, to fellowship, a loving church, but also to the breaking of bread and to prayer, to a worshiping church. Every day they continued to meet together, verse 46, in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, Praising God. God's people were a worshiping people. Breaking bread. We don't know for sure exactly what Luke meant when he wrote that. In fact, there's a big debate. Is it just talking about meals in general? Possibly. And if it is, it would make sense. Because again, this is a loving church. These people like spending time together. And what better way to spend time together than to eat together? Amen? Does it work? Does it help? Yes, but there seems to be a phrase that's used again and again, this idea of breaking bread that's similar to what Jesus did on the night of his betrayal. And Jesus took bread, and after he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. Luke chapter 24, when Jesus sat at the table and he broke bread, they recognized him. There seemed to be something very intimate and very spiritual in this action that they did together. They were committed to the Lord's table, gathering around, remembering, next Sunday we'll be celebrating it. And they were committed to the prayers. Set prayers, informal prayers. Probably both. Jews had set prayers that they knew how to use. Maybe you do as well. I grew up, we knew a couple of, of prayers that were designated for mealtime. And we could pull on a, a, a little repertoire of prayers. One, one day it would be this one, and another day it would be another one. Jesus gave us a set prayer. We prayed it this morning. Our Father who art in heaven. It's a prayer we know. But that wasn't the only kind of prayer that these early Christians prayed. They prayed with each other. They prayed for each other. They prayed in the moment. They prayed when something happened. They responded. And that was key to them. And they loved to be together regularly in the temple place which was for them at that time in these earliest days still the place of worship par excellence. And then To praise God together. As worshiping people, it's not meant to be just what we do on a Sunday morning in a worship service. But it's meant to characterize our whole lives. That we would be a people who thank God. That we would be a people who honor God. That that we we like to sing. Um, I bet some of you, as the girls were dancing this morning, were singing along. Maybe really quietly. Maybe just mouthing the words. I saw a lot of them mouthing the words up there. Okay. I was, I'm mic'd, and I never know if they have me up or down, so I tried to be silent, but I was, my, my lips were moving. We, we, we're getting more accustomed, thanks to modern recording and radios and our phones, to being able to sing with, with great accompaniment all the time. That's a good thing. It's a good thing to do and to have a lifestyle and approach of worship. The fourth thing I want you to see is that uh, the church that is vital and witnessing is a joyful church. I'm not really going to dig into this one, but I, I want you to see it. I want you to recognize how important that is in the day and age in which we live. We live in a world that is sometimes happy and sometimes sad, and a world that seems to be increasingly angry, even though so many things in life are actually so good. But wow, what a time to be alive! You know what this, uh, what the country we, need, we live in needs as much as anything? To know what joy is about. And to know what it means to be a part of a community of people who are joyful. Not because everything's always easy. Not because everything's always good. Sherry had a tough night last night. Nan is facing uh, breast cancer right now. We have guys who have been in the hospital the past week. It's not always easy. Thankfully, we don't always live in those places. But the spirit who baptizes us and inundates us with his presence is a spirit who grows things in us, love and joy and peace. And these Christians were joyful people. It was not a downer to be with them, but it was something that was electric and alive. There was something to celebrate in their faith. And as we recognize sometimes, there are virtu- there's virtually nobody else in America who's getting up today singing, except us. Christians are the ones all across the country who get up on this day. Singers, good singers and bad singers alike, here we are. But we have something to sing about because our lives are joyful. But finally, I just want to mention this. I think it's a pretty key one. The church is vital and living when it's a witnessing church. When it's a witnessing church. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. When the Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And from the very beginning, that's what happened in this community of faith. On the very first day, the Holy Spirit comes, and one of them who'd never done anything like this before got up and spoke. And guess what? Most of us are not going to be people who are going to hop up in front of 3,000 or or thirty We're not going to hop up and, and, and talk off the cuff and be able to move the hearts and the minds and the lives of most of the people gathered there. But Peter could do it. And Peter could do it because of his experience with Jesus and because of the presence of his spirit inside of him. But all of those people, all of those 3,120 had been touched by Jesus. And so together, they began living lives that other people couldn't escape. They, they couldn't get it past it. They had to pay attention. Something is going on here. And it became, uh, this twofold pattern of witness became key for the increase in the growth of what God was doing through the church. What was that twofold work? There were people who were gifted to to speak, to stand up in front of others and speak. And that was a key moment, and it happened again and again in cities around the Mediterranean as Peter or Paul or some other apostle or some other new leader would come come to town and go to the synagogue generally in the earliest years and get up and share and talk about Jesus in a way that people had to sit up and listen and think. And then people who would respond and would gather together and become a church, they wouldn't necessarily all have that role. But here is something they would all be involved in doing. They would live provocative lives. Remember this phrase from Michael Frost a couple of years ago? I used this. They led questionable lives. The way they lived with Jesus, the way they lived with each other, the way they treated the people near them, Caused other people to ask questions. The way they were joyful when they were persecuted. Caused people to ask questions. What's up with you people? Why do you live this way? Why do you react this way? What's it about? And as they provoked those questions. They had something to say. Because of this Jesus who died. Who's alive. Who sent his spirit into my life and I'm a different person today because of it. Hey, God doesn't want us to be anemic, and God doesn't want us to be a dead church. He's interested in the kind of churches that never would have shown up on a Soviet map. Would to God that every church building in the Soviet Union had been, filled, had been a living church, and there would have been no place for, for those museums. They would have found something else for But may this church never be a museum. May we be a living and vital church because we are a learning church, because we are a loving church, because we are a worshiping church, because we are a joyous church. But without the last one, it wouldn't work either because we're a witnessing church. And do you see what God did? Day by day, he was adding to their number those who were being saved. Are you ready to pray for that in this church? That we'll be all of those things? That we'll be alive? That when people talk about Vitalis, they won't be talking about pizza, but they'll be talking about First Covenant Church? Let me put it this way as we close. I'm going to invite our our worship leaders to step up for our close. But here are my questions for you. Are you a learning Christian? Are you a loving Christian? Are you a worshiping Christian? Are you a joyful Christian? Are you a witnessing Christian? Do you want to be? Here's the thing. God wants you to be. Am I? Here's the thing, Craig. God wants me to be. Let's pray. Thank you for what you did 2,000 years ago on Pentecost Day. And Lord, for the long haul, we pray that you'll do a work, a fresh work, a Pentecost kind of work in us and in our church, that we may be devoted, but only because of the work you're already doing in us, to all of this and more. May we matter, not because we're self-important, but because you want the church alive and important in this world. Help us, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.